Making our way through hour number two of the Jake Feinberg Show. Welcome back inside the Parisi Palace, high above 2919 East Broadway. Hour number two of the JFS, Mike Roper across the way doing yeoman's work. And um, as I continue my pursuit inside the mind and life and heart of a brilliant musician, Stan Getz, it is an honor to bring in his primary physician, Avram Cooperman. Welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hi. How are you, brother? I'm good. So I have to correct you. I, I, I was not his primary caregiver. I, I I served as more or less a consultant and as a good friend and directed him. He had his own specific doctors. So I was not his primary caregiver. No, I said primary but, physician. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so so in any event, uh let, let's go back you Talk about that first time in Cleveland that you met Stan when he had that bulging disc in his back. Okay, so he was good friends with a, a mutual friend whose family were great Stan Getz fans. And he was playing in Cleveland, and a friend contacted me that he was having lots of discomfort, and could I arrange for him to get into the hospital where I was working, which I did. And that's how I got to meet him. And it was clear that he had had a chronic disc problem, and that was taken care of at that visit. And so with improvement. And from that, it, it actually was, was a quirky thing how we got close. I was working late one evening and said I was going out to get something to eat. Would he like something? And he said, sure, he'd like a delicatessen sandwich or something. And I said, would you like a pickle with it? <laughs> and there was a place in the Bronx, a famous guy named Jake. And Jake set up pickle barrels between buildings in the Bronx and would sell pickles out of his barrel. And you had to be a resident or have a family member or something to know that. And that kindled a lot of laughs and began this association and uh, of trust, really. You were, so, where are you, were you originally from? I was from New York. I grew up in Queens, in Queens and Brooklyn, but I had family in the Bronx and we used to visit. And when we'd go visit, we'd take empty jars. The procedure at Jake's frequently was you would bring your own jars and he would fill them with pickles, etc. Oh man! And charge charge you accordingly. It was like so, a sweet sweet pick, like sweet and sour. Did he have different types? <laughs> Just a couple of different. I mean, yeah, those cold, yeah. Oh, no, man. he had he had diff he had different things. It was called Jake's Pickles. I mean, this is like my. This yeah, is, it it making, wasn't a, it, wasn't it wasn't a store. It was kind of outdoors. I dig. It was like a street two, market. Yeah, I know. I dig. Correct. Between two buildings. Yeah. How would you contrast? Uh, you didn't know Stan at the time, but how would you contrast your upbringing in Queens with, uh, like the Bronx? What was the vibe like in the East Bronx in that environment compared to where you were growing? Oh, up? you know, it was very, very similar. We, we, we. He, he was did not come from an affluent family, and he had this remarkable natural talent. So, um, it was a, a family-oriented society back then. Matriarch and patriarch determined, made a lot of decisions for you. This was uh, 
not dinners were not a restaurant type. What would you like? What would you like? What was served? What was served? And parents were fairly strict all across the uh, the, the area about how kids were to be brought up and how kids were to be behaved, etc. And it was actually during one of these conversations that he told me how his dad had sacrificed for him to have a musical instrument. Uh, evidently, kids didn't go away to camp from these areas for the summer. They stayed around. They played in the schoolyard. They played with each other. They read, whatever. And he said in his area... The school came by with recorders, and they would give you a recorder for the summer and come back at the end of the summer and collect it, and they'd give you a music book or something you could read with it. And when they came back to collect instruments, nobody did anything, and they said to him, oh, he said, oh, yeah, I could play anything on this. So (laughs) they were surprised, and he did, evidently. And he he just could they name something and he would play it. He talked. So he said, and and from that, my father heard heard the story or or knew of it, and he he went without lunches. He saved money and he went to a pawn shop to buy me an instrument, and he wanted to buy instrument A, but they only had one instrument, a saxophone. And he bought it, and I played it. And it was just a matter-of-fact story, and that's how it was. Can you talk about how the nuclear family operated? Because, like, Stan just—you said something very interesting there. Stan said his dad, quote-unquote, sacrificed buying him an instrument, uh, and yet his dad was chronically out of work. And, in fact, Stan was, quote-unquote, forced onto the road because he was making good money with— Big T, et cetera, et cetera, early in his career. I mean, the, the nuclear family operated, even though, you know, in today's world, uh, father doesn't have a job, uh, they're going to get a lot of flack. I'm sure he did get flack from his wife, but uh, uh, Goldie, but um, can you talk about how the nuclear family operated uh, in the sense that uh, here Stan was saying his dad was sacrificing when, in fact, he really never could create much of a livelihood for his family? Oh, well, well uh, so, so I, I didn't know much about his family, but I knew at that time, first of all, the sums of money were far, far less that people made. So the relative value of a dollar was, was significantly greater. And he, he related what you, what you just said to me, that when he, he or uh, uh, I won't digress for a minute, so go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I, I think I think at that time his dad was working probably then, and for a few weeks or two weeks, he went without lunch, so that that, that as, as Stan related it to me, and I remembered it reasonably well, and and then his dad bought him an instrument in this short period of time. This wasn't chronic saving up hundreds and hundreds of dollars because the relative value of everything back then was so in you know was was so much less when i tell people in in that days i'm talking now the 50s and the early yeah the 50s Absolutely. late 40s yeah. early 50s it, it, if, if, if you went away to college in the 60s, it might be $3,000 for the year, including room and board at the most exclusive of schools. And that was a lot of money for most families. It was just as some people didn't have. And, and the economy back then was that you saved money till you had enough to buy what you wanted. And credit cards were not in existence that I knew of then, everything was pretty much a cash or check dealing, and the sums were quite small. Homes were seven or eight thousand dollars or something. Cars were maybe fifteen hundred to three thousand dollars. So the sums of money by today's standards, because the value just isn't there.
So it was it was said more more matter of factly that in this brief period of time after the recorder, he was given a, a saxophone and started playing the saxophone, and it was just said matter of factly. Uh, he obviously had a, had a great talent for and a great ear because that's how he would play. He never read music till much later in life. Absolutely, no. He had he he had immortal gifts as far as a musician was concerned. Talking to Avram Cooperman here, a legendary physician and somebody who uh, very close with Stan Getz from a doctor level and also a personal level. Um, do you did you find yourself? Um, I don't know how to put this, but um, as you got to know Stan more, and you know he. You know he had such talents and gifts, and he and he could be a mensch and a, and a beautiful cat. Um, did you find yourself um, being softer on him than you probably should have been? No, because I was kind of more his advisor. He would usually come to me a- after he'd be on the road, or doctor might tell him something, and I would be very frank always with with him. And, you know, would, would get him help when he wanted help with whatever the issue was. You know, back at that time, the, the, the musicians weren't as educated as, as they would be today. They weren't surrounded by a retinue of attorneys, etc. And, and it was not uncommon to hear them complain that the manager was signing a record deal and the manager did as well as the musician, or that was the feeling, etc. So, you know, in, in ways that I could help him medically and other, I, I was always very factual about it. So that could you could you uh, and, yeah could you cite could you cite a specific example? Well, he was as you said, he went on the road early on. He was accepted to one of the special schools in New York City, a, a music school for high school. And I think there was an interlude, and, and you got into it by auditioning. And he quite impressed uh, who the, the auditioners. And as he related to me, he was said, hey, kid, would you like to go on the road? School's not starting for a week. Uh, we go to Chicago. I think you could make twenty-five or twenty-nine dollars for the week. And he said, "Oh my God, yeah, I'd love to do that." They said, "Okay, be at Grand Central or Penn Station at six o'clock. We're leaving to go to the Midwest." And he went and he got on the train and someone said, "Here, have a drink of this." He didn't know what that was. So a scotch or something. Had no inkling, and that began a. Uh, a problem with alcohol, which during the time that I knew him, he put behind him, and there were issues. He was very, as many people who had this and other disease, they were very pain-sensitive without realizing it or realizing it in, in many cases. They'd have an addiction to drugs, either physician-induced, naturally-induced if they took other substances, but it made it difficult if you had an operation as it does today because your pain tolerance is so great that after surgery it's it's very uncomfortable for you because your baseline need is much greater than other people and physicians are commonly used to giving a certain dose of medicine and they are or were uncomfortable in giving higher doses because people needed it because they were habituated or or had problems. So in the time that I knew him, I helped him. This was his doing, eliminate those issues from his his life. Um, Can you talk about a specific time that he he did a, he probably was on the road six months out of the year spent a lot of time in Europe when you first connected with him it was the early 70s he had already become a huge uh, jazz pop star um, can you talk about a time when he was uh, struggling with a variety of issues coming off the road the life of a jazzer and you uh, how you counseled him yeah I, 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 and just 
just as I said, I, I can't recall a specific moment, but, but I, re- I recognized, and he recognized, and it was brought to his attention that right after his disc surgery, that the amount of pain medicine he was getting was so far greater than what many other, most other patients took. It suggested that he had had an issue with this, and in fact, he ran a fever, and that's always a concern after surgery. Is there an infection in the area? And when you work in those areas, it was a particular concern. This was the year before there were CAT scans and many of those things, and it and it, it was recognized that this might have been related to just a need, uh, a, a higher need for pain medicine and at that time he was on the they decreased his pain medicine and they helped him get back to you know a more manageable situation the fevers went away and that was it I, what I'm what I'm getting at is like so but I just want to be clear that he he was taking a, a, a higher than normal dose of pain medicine because he had been using a lot of heroin, right? So he needed that. Uh, he had been, yeah, yeah uh, he had been using. I, I never qu- queried him on that because I was never treating him. So I knew that he had been using substances that would interact with this, that would that made it so that the reason he, he needed this higher dose of medicine was from a... Uh, issue of taking substances, pain medicine, drugs in the past, and it was it, it was told to me by him and others that 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 was the the life of the jazz musician back then for many, and he was no different in that regard. Abram, uh, what was your what was your um, uh like Stan Getz, before you ever connected from a consultant point of view, uh, physician point of view, what was your, what did you know about Stan? Oh, I, I knew the girl from Ipanema. Mm-hmm. I liked jazz, the modern jazz quartet. I loved uh, Dizzy Gillespie and Theolonius Monk, but not that I went to clubs or anything. Mm-hmm. I would hear them on recordings or on the radio, and that was it. Uh, did you, even though you maybe couldn't relate to it, uh, did you understand this lifestyle of a jazzer and the idea that yeah that no no I could can you can course. you talk? For, I'm 38 years old, and for younger generations, and for this movie to really breathe, can you talk about what it was, how it was relayed to you, what the life of a jazzer was? Uh, it, it first of all, it was it was great difficulty getting appreciated in the United States. So even though he would have a claim overseas, it was extraordinarily difficult in the U.S. It just was not popular. Uh, he, He would be playing in Cleveland and Midwestern towns at small jazz clubs and this, this was the life. You know, there were one or two spots in New York where people played downtown, uh, the Blue Note, etc. But but that was uncommon, and that was booked for big names, but very, very difficult life, which is why most went to Europe or, or to other countries where it was appreciated. Their incomes were terrible. They would teach. They would do whatever they could to to make a living. Very, very difficult times. Popular with some people, but certainly not popular. You you didn't have a lot of jazz stations on the radio that were promoting it. Is it? Are, are you you believe that it's accurate to say that that for instance, uh, his his you know Desafinado or Girl from Ipanema that stuff never got regular airplay in the United States. It did after a while, once it became a popular, but it, be, it did so because it became a popular tune. Right. But, I mean, how long did it take to ferment, do you think? Uh, that I don't know. 
Right. I, I don't know when he recorded it or when it became popular, but that that I guess here's the better question: the, Did because you knew that you knew of him because of that, and did you have the I, did you have the record or were you actually hearing it on the radio? That's all. I'm, I'm, I was hearing it on the radio. Interesting. I, I knew of I knew of him before that. That was played on popular radio stations. Interesting. That made hit lists. That was in the top ten. Yeah, he knocked and off. Was, uh, he knocked the Beatles off of the top. Uh, right. Of the charts and for a while. So, and it was so unusual for a jazz person. There was there was Bags Groove. Uh-huh. Uh, there was right. take, there was Take Five by Paul Desmond and and the Brubeck Group. You could hear those on the radio, but you would hear isolated, you hear isolated songs from their albums. So that was it. I mean, there there were people that were jazz aficionados, but they didn't constitute enough people that life was easy for the jazz performer. It 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 began to change with when these things. At, at, my understanding became popular and then they had summer jazz festivals they had jazz at randall's island they had the newport jazz festival and that would put on display a number of jazz greats at any one time and people would go for two days etc and that that got them more publicity did he talk to you uh um, how this uh, affected him? Did was he bothered by the fact that the place where he? I mean, again, New York is an outlier. New York was a bastion of jazz culture, but I mean, did did was he was he bothered by the? I mean, he was treated like a star in, in Europe, but did he ever share with you this uh, uncomfortability about the fact that the music that he loved to play was not appreciated where he was? From? Yeah, yeah, and and he'd introduced me to. I, I once heard him play at Lincoln Center, and he got to, he he was talking to Miles, et cetera, after that. That was, I gather, not infrequently discussed how they waited and waited, and you know, now now it was a real thing, but it sure wasn't for a very long time. Um. When you say real thing, you mean it became uh, some more. Uh, uh, not a following up. Well, I mean, or, or did it become like more of like a, like a, an upper crust kind of uh, social event? I mean, he used to play the Rainbow Room, like Stanley Clark and Tony Williams. Those guys would be in tuxedos, you know. I mean, was right, it, right. So, so are you saying that jazz elevated, for, like in the social strata, and that's why it became acceptable? Well, I, I couldn't say that, but, but 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 I was saying that the popularity because of these couple of songs opened people's eyes so that they said, oh, yeah, let's see what else Stan gets. I it, dig. Very and, well. Our, and, I like this. Yeah, I like this. And what? then, bingo, it, it introduced them to, they became more open to it. And then it became quite the rage. You know, we were we were now in the '60s and the '70s, and th these guys had finally were were getting their recognition and their dues, so to speak. Um, Abram, uh, was there ever a time in in the uh, uh, physician community in the United States where uh, you could a doctor could authorize uh, a a prescription for cocaine for people? Uh, not that, not that I was aware of. Because I, I've no, I was. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that 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 I I have. Um, uh, I did an interview with a drummer that played with Stan at Ronnie Scott's, and I and I wonder sometimes if, I mean, he did spend a lot of time in Europe, and even when he was living in the states, he would travel there, where uh, you know, uh, uh, house doctors in Europe could prescribe cocaine and uh yeah. in fact stan used that quite a bit and uh but mm -hmm. I, w I wasn't sure if that was stuff that where he would go over there and do that stuff i mean he was he very honest with you about what he was doing when he would come back because he obviously had more opportunities and he had more connections there to do drugs than, than uh well, the, the, the fact the fact is it was it was legal you know uh, to, to, yeah. to do yeah. that. So I just, I just want you to break that down. It's important because... So, so of yeah. course, but, but 
but I'll be of less help because my discussions with him about that were when he was getting off everything. I would go to AA meetings with him or I would go to meetings. And so he might make sentences in the past how this was so in Europe. And even today, you know, we have a problem with physicians. People go to physicians and they seek pain medicine. And initially, uh, it can be confusing whether they have a real underlying illness that's causing the pain or it's, this is just drug-seeking behavior. That, that wasn't my sphere of medicine. And, and so I, I, I wouldn't be judgmental about it. I didn't sit and talk to him about, hey, how easy was it to get drugs in Europe? It was more, you know, I'm seeing this guy, what do you think, or etc um, and and for perhaps that that's why we had a, a good relationship because I wasn't I I wouldn't I wouldn't spend the time talking about those things but I mean uh, in reading uh, Donald Magan's book you started a um, intervention. You were the first speaker at an intervention in around 1980. Stan was raging throughout the 70s. So you could not, I understand that, uh, you know, maybe you weren't, you know, directly, directly in the tempest, but that meeting went awry very quickly. Uh, Stan, oh, because, right. But what, because I'm, what I'm saying is I, 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 I believe that, uh, Truthfully, I believe that you played a much larger role than um, than possibly you're even alluding to because you, you were you spearheaded this intervention. It didn't go that great, but he didn't really stop using drugs until the last few years of his life. So, I mean, the '70s were a tumultuous time, and I just think that it's important. Right. I want you to just. Oh, put... I, I I wasn't trying to be. You're talking about the uh, the intervention at his home that that I did not arrange that I was asked to be at when he he learned that he was taking unbeknownst to him a drug that make taking alcohol that's right that's much right more difficult he was to he never knew that he was taking an abuse and that that really started uh but I I didn't know it either so what was know, it, yeah. was like so, so that's how that went south. No, but, I, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I actually, someone said that uh, in the book that you were not critical enough of Stan, but then at the same time you didn't organize it. And then on the flip side, uh, it was also a new revelation that that Monica had been feeding him ant abuse. Um, right. So it's totally legitimate. Can you talk about a defining moment of your and Stan's relationship in the '70s when um, you either got him away from a doctor who was not doing the right work or that you helped him ease his pain because we're talking about a guy who had um who was uh, uh, had some kind of mood disorder uh he never really wanted to accept that uh he also uh, turned a lot towards substance abuse for that kind of stuff and he was known to just be uh you know for lack of a better word he within five minutes uh, his moods could change from bizarre and angry to, you know, polite and totally hospitable. Uh, can you talk about yeah. a defining moment? Uh, so, yeah. So, 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 let me put the the context. So, so I don't get more credit than I deserve or, or less. <laughs> so, so I I was a physician at the Cleveland Clinic seventy three to seventy nine. So once he left Cleveland, we have sporadic phone conversations. In 79, I came to New York, and then I would see him. Occasionally, he'd see a physician, etc. I think I, I got closer to him when he, he really was kicking everything. So that, that's when I would spend more time with him. First, I was in New York then. Uh, my kids were a little older. He knew them all. I think he came to my son's bar mitzvah. Mm -hmm. I remember my son playing happy birthday to him on his trombone when Stan was in Cleveland and he was six. Terribly off-key and everything, <laughs> but it was very, very funny. And so 
he, I, I had heard of this side of him, but honestly, I had never seen it. I, I, I didn't say go to Dr. A or Dr. B, but I would question something if it didn't sound right to me later in life when he had serious health issues. I kind of helped direct him to people where he was who, you know, sterling reputations and would always do the right thing. And by that time, uh, Herb Alpert was, was in his life and he had people that really were looking out for him so that absolutely it, 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 it was more of a good acquaintance. So he never was terrible with me because our time was limited together. He played at the Forest Hills. They used to have a jazz festival in the old tennis stadium at Forest Hills. And I remember he stayed with me for two days or three days while that festival was on right near Lincoln Center. And it was just a good time for him. Yeah, that's the right. that's the famous uh, place where where Bob Dylan plugged in and the and the and the crowd right. tried to scream and charge the stage. You know that <laughs> pre Newport jazz fest. But this is unbelievable. Uh, so I mean, can you talk about when he was on the other side, really trying to clean up? Uh, he w- could he, could you talk to, talk about what he would say haunted him? Because obviously he used to mask it all with huge amounts of of drug abuse and alcohol. So what would you guys? How would you counsel him? Because when he would have panic attacks and anxiety. So he he didn't with me. And, you know, I don't even know who was, a, after the Cleveland Clinic, that the need for drug for, for pain medicine really, I think, de- decreased significantly because they helped wean him from that. And he saw that the fevers and all were definitely drug-related. So I, I wasn't in touch with him all that. He would call, and if I was in the area, we might get together, we'd talk. And it was it was on that level. I didn't really say it. I'd question something, and I'd say, that doesn't make sense to me. You don't want to do that. But that was about general health issues as well. So I, it's not. I'm not being evasive. I just don't have specific recollections of that because. No, to, I mean, but I were, were you? A, were you? So you never. You were not like a, a salaried person of Stan. No, no, never. Never. So you, but going back to the Cleveland Clinic with with the pickles, the Jake's pickles, the the. the, the I, 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 so I wasn't. I wasn't his caregiver then. So I never submitted a bill to him uh, for, for any of those things. I, I would stop by because I made the arrangement, and that's the, who I was, basically. Absolutely. No, I want to know why Stan loved you. I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> uh, well, why do you think? I, I, well, first of all, I, I heard him. I heard what he was saying. I was non-judgmental. Uh, I I I, re, I regarded him. Real, I thought he was an amazing talent. I thought he was a terrific guy, and you know he he had had a lot of bumps in the road, and he was putting his life together. I had great admiration for that, and and he knew that, and I treated him as as a, as a friend and as a, as an equal, and he was. I mean, he was a, just a fabulous genius musically and he didn't even know how that happened I know. it was just it just came out it was, it was like Michelangelo there was a block of, of, of granite or marble to everyone but he saw something in it and freed it he was amazing can you go a little bit farther with that analogy to Michelangelo I really like that he, he I would say how do you he said, Coop, I, I, I don't know. I, it's it's there. I just get up and I start playing and it came. It was, and, and for those who, mere mortals, they would try to study or ask questions about this. I, I don't know how you define those people. 
they see things or they hear things. They, they, they're, they're on. A, I think everyone, has, many people have a individual genius, and you spend your life trying to find find out what it is. <laughs> hopefully, he, you find out sooner than later, right? <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully, he found out. He found out when he was twelve, and they came back for the recorder. They would name a tune, and he could play anything. And they said, "Oh my God." He was he was really just the fact that he did it. People didn't do it. They take the recorder and at the end of the summer they'd say, "Oh gosh, where is it? Where did, where did I put that? Not, not that I ever played it, but where did I put it?" So kind kind of remarkable. I know he invited me to the White House when he got the presidential medal. He Dizzy Gillespie. Thinking who the third one was, and and the and the moderator was Itzhak Perlman, and each of them had to bring a young jazz musician, and he brought Diana Shure because he heard her at Monterey when he was at the Monterey Jazz Festival. So that's who he brought. I think Wynton Marsalis was brought by Dizzy. What what a spectacular moment! I think Chick Corea was there too. It, it could have been. There was a third. There, there were three medals given, and it was just, it was so nice to see him getting a recognition for something like that, and, you know, for the others as well. Can you just go back? I don't know if you can, you were waxing poetic before about Michelangelo. You said he could take a block of granite, and what did you oh, say? Oh, right. Yeah. So, you know, that, that that's a famous story that the, the David that he carved in the late 15th century or so that was that was already carved before by someone and the city of of Florence was getting nowhere with it and they were having a festival or a centennial and they wanted to have that and they they were the little city surrounded by Siena and other places he he said I, I just saw David in that, and I let him free. You know, when he when he was young in the Medici Garden, they had stones for young people to sculpt, and that's where he he went and he learned, so to speak. And and the story has it that Lorenzo came by when he was about twelve or thirteen, and he said, "How do you like this head?" He carved the head of an old man. It was some guidance, but, and he said, well, you know, that does look like an old man, but he has all his teeth and old men don't. So he <laughs> knocked out a tooth or chipped a tooth. And, you know, these, these, those people just, how do you explain it? Right. I, the I word that, so, so I just want to be clear. The, 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 the face of David had been done before, but he never saw it. And then he. And he it, it, no, the statue was attempted to be carved before that block of granite was attempted to be. It wasn't carved as a David. Somebody was working on it, and they could get nowhere. It was an odd piece. It was very big. It was very long. And when so when he got the commission to do it, he saw it. He just saw it. And then similarly to Stan, it was like this uh, he was a visionary and, and really couldn't explain it in words. He could just see it. And, and, right. He wouldn't go around saying, oh, I'm the greatest saxophone player. And I, he, that was not him. He just played. That's it just, fascinating. It just came to him. It's fascinating. It is. Um, um, look, you have a much more contact with these jazz greats and i'm sure that's a common bond with many of them well i mean some of i mean uh, i i think one of the things about stan that is just so interesting um you know a lot of guys um just uh woodshedded and woodshedded and woodshedded and ultimately you know they were um their musical chops grew over time because they were the touring circuit was relentless and they were on the bandstand and they really developed and got, felt comfortable and started to be able to feel the music and yada 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 yada. Stan, like you said, was was molded by thirteen years old. 
I mean, he was already no. he was already there. Um, emotionally, right. though, he was not. Um, oh no, he he was he was a kid thrown in an adult's world, and imagine how that must be today as well. And and you didn't have chaperones; your parents didn't go on the road with you. Well, Jack Teagarden was a chaperone. He's a great chaperone. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Can you talk about um? Uh, Looking back on it, uh, why you think a, doc, a film documentary on Stan Getz should be made? Uh, I, I think he was so emblematic of a time. And, you know, he was a Caucasian white jazz grade at a time where that was in, certainly in a minority. And he got on with people. Boy, he, he, he was an icon. In, in in a field and how did it happen he, he was so emblematic of a of a time where people just had a calling or had a mission I think it'd be a wonderful thing to to see I'd learn a lot from it I guess me. can you what do you mean em, emblematic of the time what was that time about uh, it, there, there was a lot of self-starters it was uh it, it was difficult to 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 be a pioneer. There, there were no there were there weren't great startups. There wasn't great capital around that that people had expenditures to try this and try that. You went into family businesses if you were lucky. You went to a local college. You might become a teacher or a professional. Jazz was was not on high on the list to become a professional jazz musician high high on the list of what families had their kids aspire to that was that was his calling that that was it for him you can you talk about going to an aa meeting with stan so i i, I went to one he didn't speak at that one but he was religious about attending them and it, it just Others got up and spoke that particular night. It was in a small church in the West 60s, right off uh, Columbus Avenue, 69th Street. And he just felt good, you know, that A, I would go with him, because I think that just, again, reinforced how non judgmental this whole thing was about. I just, I. And he just felt good going there, hearing other people's stories. He was not alone. He was not the only guy that had demons and had problems. And it was it was important at that time for him. Did he feel, I mean, obviously he enjoyed your company because he didn't feel judged, but do you think he felt judged most of the time? No, I don't, I don't know. I didn't think it was like like so many things that happened in your life. It's a segment. I'm 77 now, so it was it was a segment of my life. I would hear from him. We would get together, and I wasn't very analytic about it. I didn't even know I was that important a person, you know, to him or for him. I, I was always there if he needed me for conversation, for talk, for advice. Etc., which he was free to take or not take. So I never viewed myself as someone that was so special in his life. I got to know his family and etc. And as, as I look back on it, it was, it was a wonderful time for me because he was just such a good guy. He had a, he, he had a very sweet, innate goodness of the that's that's how I knew him. You know, I didn't see him at times that he might be otherwise. Can, can you uh, can you talk about a specific innate goodness that you saw him exhibit? He was always not nice to people. He he was kind. He was not a braggart. I never heard him. You know, self praise. I I didn't hear any of that. This was something. Uh, he did, and he got this. How much advice did you, I mean, in the 80s, especially when he first was diagnosed with, you know, cancerous tumors, uh, 
he that, so that was it was amazing His well no well, I, I guess, well, let me let me just ask ask my question and then you can riff on it i i just he really went very strong towards chinese medicine uh seaweed drinks warm seaweed drinks that he would drink gallons of and, and kept him alive for 10 years did you were you giving him advice on that kind of stuff that was not western yeah that that was so additive so what happened was as a result of drinking in the past he had a cirrhotic liver which is a difficult situation and patients that had a lot of scar tissue in his liver and patients that have that are are not good candidates to have surgical procedures done and a liver tumor was diagnosed which is not uncommon. That's the common background to have cirrhosis in that. And he, he was considering a liver transplant. I had spent some time with the, the then well-known transplanter. He, he, was, he was a high-risk guy, and, and they didn't like doing cirrhotics per se. And other people were going to operate and do major liver resections, and there was an issue of survival and recovery after that. And it was, I thought a family member found someone, as I remember it, in Utah, who was a Eastern, who was a Chinese doctor by ancestry, who knew a lot about herbal medicine, but who practiced Western medicine. I mean, he practiced very standard traditional medicine. And you know, there's a, there's a book, Anti-Cancer, A New Way of Life, a, a story of someone that had a neurology resident who had a brain tumor that had it treated in a standard way. It came back, and when he ran out of options, he began to change his diet, and he went to the East to and began to take things that were natural, more natural types of medicine. So Stan... I said, Stan, you know, you'll see what happens because you have a measurable thing. There were CAT scans then, and it disappeared. I couldn't believe it, but it did disappear. He was being followed at Palo Alto, a, a fine medical group and a fine medical community, and one of the radiologists there was someone I had trained with at Mayo. So I, I had some relation, and... This, this did help him. It, it certainly gave him enough immunity, and that was a tumor that either spontaneously or because of these herbs disappeared. And he subsequently had another condition that, that killed him that was not related to that. But it was pretty dramatic, I will tell you. That's when he became so interested and overboard in in doing natural things for his health. Uh, Dr. Uh, Abram Cooperman, uh, if there's uh, one thing that you want people to know about Stan Getz that you knew, uh, aside from him being a really decent, sweet guy, uh, what is the most important thing that you want uh, to th this film to get across? Well, I'm going to be a great spectator of it and, and watch it because it, I, I... What do you want to... Okay, here's a better question. What do you want to learn? Because you've said that twice now. What do you want to learn about this film? Oh, I, I, I'll, I'll get the whole story of his life uh, as, as told. I'm sure you're, in, you're interviewing other people. Dozens, dozens. Were influential in his life, etc. And... I really can't take any credit for anything. I just thought he was a wonderful guy. And he was in my dealings with him. And he he did he did the, the hard things. It's not easy to change lifestyle when you're, we can't get people to give up, you know, meats and, and things. They shouldn't, they, they'd be better eating healthier foods. Imagine if it's something that really is habit forming. How difficult that must be. 
Dr. Cooperman, Coop, uh, I, we will be coming to see you with a video camera sometime down the road. Okay. All right, but uh, I really had a ball talking to you, man, and uh, thanks. Me for, too. Thanks for taking the time. And thank man. you. No, thank you for calling attention to uh, this wonderful guy. Well, we're going to see it through, baby, so we'll be in touch. Thank, thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you very right. much. Okay. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, Roper, what do you what do you make? What, 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 was, what, what was the biggest learning experience for you today? Uh, j- just, you know, today I think uh, it highlighted the real sweet character of, uh, of, of Stan Getz. I think that was kind of one of the things that has got lost in all of this and that, you know, he was, uh, you know, and also humble, too. He wouldn't brag. He was very, right. you know— that's right. You know, maybe behind closed doors with more intimate people, he was more, you know, more direct. But it, it seems like he was just so courteous to people, the everyday people, his fans, people that would see him on the street. And, and you know, that to me is is a real genuine artist, someone that is just there for the people. And then again, held him held himself critically that he had to perform. He had to give it his best to his fans and to to the audience. That to me. And then it's just overall, just a nice guy, just overall. just That's what rings true to me about Stan Getz right now today. I think that's really important because we've heard a lot about the horns coming out when he would be drinking or drugging. and uh, But at the core, the guy, I mean, Avram must have hung out with him hundreds of times and loved the guy. So uh, we will continue uh, this obsession with Stan Getz. Uh, thanks to Mike Roper. Uh, thanks to Jim Parisi, PowerTalk.Live will continue now with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, the show on Army veterans. For everybody here at PowerTalk.Live, this is the Jake Feinberg Show, and we'll see you next week. Yeah. Now go to the studio, girl. Yeah. I know you're going to see it now.